Well, uh, last week we all had a little bit of a break. Some of us were away on camp uh, um, where we worked through uh, the book of Jonah. Um, it was a great time, and uh, some of us, I understand, were here being led in morning prayer by Tim Bowles, and uh, I understand that worked really well as well. So praise God for that. That was great. So after a little bit of a break, uh, we jump back into Paul's letter to the churches of Galatia. Uh, today will be the third sermon uh, on this letter, um, and I think it is a very hard letter to understand, and a very easy letter to misunderstand. For that reason, I've taken the liberty in this series to jump around a little bit, not looking at the material in order, but rather to rearrange things so that we can come up to speed with things that Paul and the recipients of this letter already understood and already had in common before even pen was put to paper. So then, the story thus far. In the mid-40s AD, Paul, Barnabas, and John Mark go on their first missionary trip together, evangelizing the eastern end of the Mediterranean world, preaching in the Jewish synagogues a message of repentance and forgiveness of sins through faith in Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Churches were duly established. Now, somewhere in the region of 9 to 12 years later, say the mid-50s AD, Paul writes a letter, uh, uh, the letter that we are reading to those very same churches, churches in the towns of an area that today is in central Turkey, but back then, the Roman province of Galatia. It was an angry letter. Something has happened that has made Paul very very distressed. Indeed, he considers the thing that he, he's heard about what's happening in those churches, he considers it to be a category one disaster. What has happened? Well, some men have come. Some men have arisen. Possibly they've come from Jerusalem. Possibly they're locals or a mixture of both. We don't know where they came from, but what they are doing is adding to Paul's message. They are saying that you cannot be justified unless you do certain things. Now, uh, we've already looked at this word, justification, uh, in an earlier sermon. It's a technical term of enormous significance. But with respect to our context here, the question of justification essentially is this. What does authentic Christian spirituality actually look like in practical terms. That's what they're talking about. What does authentic Christian spirituality look like in practical terms? And the men, adding to Paul's message, had this to say. Authentic Christian spirituality must include circumcision of all males, Sabbath-keeping every Sabbath, and observing the Mosaic food laws, keeping kosher, in other words. This was their message. If you don't do these things, you are not right with God. Ultimately, of course, it wouldn't stop there. These three things were entry points, the bare minima. <laughs> what these men were advocating was that all new Gentile, that is to say non-Jewish, all Gentile believers in Jesus, the, the Messiah and Lord, that they had to become what we might call observant Jews 
Bible-obeying, Torah-observing, law-keeping Jews. If they were to be righteous, that is to say, the right-living people of God. Paul's response in this letter, in essence, is this. Authentic Christian spirituality, in practical terms, looks like this. Love your neighbor. That's what it looks like. If you now go and get yourself circumcised, believing that it's that that makes you right with God, then you may as well not have ever bothered becoming a Christian in the first place. The reason is simple. You are right with God. You are right with God. The, the moment you put your faith in Jesus Christ, his son. Period, as the Americans say. You are right with God when you put your faith in Jesus, his son, and not on the basis of observing the law of Moses. And this message, so very, very, very difficult for observant Jewish Christians to understand, and yet so basic and fundamental to, to, to what the Christian gospel is, it would have sparked any number of questions and concerns and comments. But perhaps the, the, the chiefest of all of these, most pressing of all of these questions was this one. If that's true, Paul, then why the law? Why was the law of Moses given at all? Paul, anticipating this question, asks it himself on their behalf in verse 19 of chapter 3. And over the next 14 verses, Paul will make a number of interconnected points leading to an astonishing conclusion in chapter 4, verses 1 to 7. Paul's primary point is that the law was given because of transgressions, holding us in custody, locked up, until such time as the very thing that the law pointed to arrived. Like a pair of uh, luxury fur-lined handcuffs, or like living in a luxury prison cell, the law of Moses was holy restraint for unholy people. Both conforming and confining so that they should not and could not, metaphorically speaking, beat the living stuffing out of each other and themselves. Now, a prison cell, of course, it can stop criminal behavior. It can stop a criminal behaving criminally. That's what a prison cell can do. But it offers no help. It offers no cure with respect to remedying criminal tendencies. It can certainly stop criminal behavior, sorry, criminal people behaving criminally, and hopefully, hopefully lead them to the revelation that something more fundamental than their behavior needs to change. But that's all it can do. Speaking of change, how many social workers does it take to change a light globe? Come on, somebody must want to know the answer. <laughs> One, but the light globe must want to change. <laughs> Holy restraint for unholy people. The law confined and constrained behavior without being able to deal with the root problem. So what was that root problem? 
Well, in one place here in our passage, Paul just, just moves over really quickly by describing it as being enslaved to the elemental spiritual forces of this world. And uh, he fleshes that out in other places. We know exactly what he means. He means that basic, fundamental, God-ignoring, God-hating, God-rejecting inclination of the human heart, of every single human heart ever, save one, that disposition of human beings to be allergic to God and allergic to the things of God, whatever they might be. For we want to be our own gods. We want to be the author and hero of our own stories. We want to be the ruler of our own lives. We want to be the creator of our own identities. That self-centered, self-obsessed, selfish disposition of all human beings means that our basic orientation to God is rebellious and our basic relationship to other human beings is predatory. That unclean spirit-led drive and compulsion that the primary purpose of life is the satisfaction of our own desires. Well, the Bible has a word for that. Sin. The law restrains sin without solving sin as Paul says elsewhere. If there was such a law that gave life, then all would be needed would be for the giving of that law. But there's no such law that gives life. And Paul, when he talks about the failure of the law to be able to give life, he's picking up on one of the great hopes of the Old Testament, that God, in the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, would utterly transform the human heart. He has in mind, perhaps, passages such as Ezekiel 36. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and to be careful to keep my laws. Or perhaps he has in mind Jeremiah 31. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor and say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness, and I will remember their sins no more. So the law was holy restraint for unholy people, but it was no lasting solution. Another way that Paul, now in our passage, goes into looking about this is that he he uses the example of the pedagogue. Uh, That word, which has been translated in our Bibles as guardian or or teacher, uh, it means literally child leader, not 
a child who is a leader, but rather someone who leads a child, a pedagogue. Um, picture a high-status family, lots of slaves. The father, the patriarch, is preparing his son, who will one day be his heir and also his representative in all matters legal and financial. The father is preparing his son for his future career. One of the slaves is assigned the role of pedagogue or guardian. This man would himself be very well educated and a high-status male, uh, male slave, albeit slave. The pedagogue's duties would include taking the boy to school and accompanying him at all times in public, making sure that he didn't associate with the wrong crowd or pick up any unfortunate habits. The pedagogue would also be a private tutor, guiding the boy's reading, thinking, and education, forming him for a lifelong career in community leadership and involvement. Sounds like fun, doesn't it? The law, Paul says, was our pedagogue while we were still kids. Let's change that story a little bit. Keep that in mind. Now a slight variation on it. The situation is different because the father has died. The entire estate, whilst technically belonging to the son, as heir and inheritor, it needs to be under the direction of guardians and trustees. The son, although a son, is thus functionally a slave because others tell him what to do and when to do it, because he himself is not yet old enough to have the good judgment or the ability to take responsibility for that which will one day belong to him. The law of Moses, Paul says, was fitting for just such a stage in our development. But everything I've described, everything I've described changes with the coming of Jesus Christ. But when the time Set had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God, spent, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has also made you an heir. God sent his son, co-eternal with the Father, the eternal son of God, came down from heaven, born of a woman, a phrase completely unnecessary unless we're talking about the pre-existent eternal son of God. But he became fully human, sharing in our humanity, born under the law, he shared the biological, cultural, ethnic, and spiritual heritage of the Jews, a son of Abraham, to redeem those under the law, to bring an end to their true slavery, their slavery to sin and its consequences, death, judgment, and condemnation. The word redeem is a slave market word. It means to buy somebody out of slavery, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Another picture from the high-status end the upmarket end of town of the Greco-Roman world, uh, adoption, incredibly high status in the ancient world. Uh, a Caesar or an emperor would adopt a promising young boy in order to make him his heir and representative. Many of the Caesars of, of, of the Roman emperor were adopted. High status thing. Sonship to whom? 
Adopted to sonship, sonship to whom? Well, one of the things that's been driving this conversation right from the start is the question of what it actually means to be a child or son of Abraham. For the Jews knew that it was the children of Abraham who had inherited the promises of God. The promise of God's protection, the promise of God's presence, the promise of God's provision, the promise above all to always be at work so as to bless and save them, to be their God and them his people. What an extraordinary promise. So who are these sons of Abraham, these children of Abraham? The Jews knew that the sons of Abraham showed that they were sons of Abraham by all males being circumcised on the eighth day. Paul has been explaining through this letter that the true children of Abraham are those... It's always been the same. The true children of Abraham are those who put their trust in Abraham's God, now revealed to be faith in Jesus Christ of Nazareth. These true children enter into this spiritual heritage not by way of circumcision, but rather by baptism, Baptism taking over from circumcision as the entry rite of passage. The, 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 it's all there uh, in this passage we've read, the ancient divisions, the way that people divided themselves, the way, that, the way that people thought of themselves as better or worse than others. It's all there in our passage, the divisions of the ancient Greco-Roman world, Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female. Um, and, and uh, this isn't about identity. Um, this is about hierarchy. Uh, you know, people would, would stand in the synagogue and say, I, I thank you, God, that I've been born a Jew and, and not a nasty, unclean pagan. I thank you that I'm a man and not a woman. Whew! And thank you that I'm free and not a slave. This is not about identity. It's not about new identity. It's not about old identity. It's not about no identity. It's about hierarchy. And, and, and the wonderful thing is that they're all sons of Abraham, male or female, Jew or Gentile, slave or free, all true inheritors of the promise of God to look after, save and protect on an equal basis. Because there's no favoritism with God with respect to his children. He loves all of them equally. He loves all of his children equally. His children being those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ his eternal son. So if you've put your faith in Jesus, his son, he loves you. And he loves you equally with all of his children. And he loves you just as much as he loves Jesus, his son. That's how much he loves you. That's how much he loves you. Equality, no hierarchy to be a child of God. Extraordinary. But of course, Paul has even more precious and extraordinary things to share with us. Adoption to sonship, so that the believer in Jesus can truly say, my father is Abraham. Adoption to sonship. Um, sonship, by the way, it's, it's not gender-inclusive language, uh, but, but sonship is about representative. Sonship is about being given authority to represent. That's what the word sonship is about, uh, symbolically or figuratively. Um, so you're called to sonship, whether you're male or female. This, this, is, this is our inheritance. Slave or free, Jew or Gentile, male or female, sonship called with and given authority to represent. Adoption to sonship so that the believer can truly say, my father is God the father. 
Adoption to sonship so that the believer can confidently say, whether Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, my father is God the Father in precisely the same way as God the Father is the Father of the eternal Son of God. I'm in on the same basis. The Trinity has opened it up, and I'm a member of it. The Son of God, even Jesus, the Messiah, Son of the Most High God. And all of this, the work of one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, what we, what we uh, sometimes call the Trinity. Because you are his sons, God sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts. That Spirit of God who is the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of Jesus, the Spirit of the Son, that cleansing, living, life-giving Spirit that changes our hearts and our minds, that deals with the problem, through whom we know we are forgiven, through whom we cry out, Abba, Father, the Spirit who filled us in power when we came to faith in Jesus Christ, the Spirit who is the Father living within us, and also the Son living within us, the Spirit who calls out then, Abba, Father, the Spirit through whom we have intimacy with God, knowing God, knowing, knowing that the God we know knows us, desiring God, desiring God, no longer allergic, but actually hungering and thirsting for more of God, to do his will and to know him better, to love him, intimacy, Abba, Jesus' own word for prayer with his Father, an intimate form of address, an at-home word. A loving word for dad. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. So then, going back to Torah observance, law-keeping, Bible obedience, beginning with getting circumcised, that would be one small snip for a man one giant leap backwards for mankind. It would be like going back to jail because you do not believe that you can ever be cured of your own criminal tendencies. It would be like moving from a loving, close relationship with your father, a relationship of trust, intimacy, and friendship, back to a transactional relationship with an unknown and distant father mediated through an intermediary. Your dad says, keep your nose clean and you'll still get the allowance. It would be like moving from the unconditional belonging of a child at home with her parents to performance review, performance-based acceptance, the same performance-based acceptance under which the slave in the field lives or the hired laborer in the factory, performance-based acceptance. Slavery, that's the way it's done in hell. But no, we, we, have, we, we have the belonging of a child at home in her own family. But perhaps then to end where we began, why the law? Does what Paul is saying, does it mean that we don't have to obey the Ten Commandments? Yes. That's what he's saying. We don't have to. We do not have to obey the Ten Commandments. Or at least not in the same sense that our belonging depends upon it. The crucifixion, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ, together with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost as historical realities, changes everything. Before these things, we had to obey the Ten Commandments, and we couldn't, and we didn't want to. After these things, we don't have to, but actually now we want to. 
And we can. And we will. If we have met Jesus and surrendered our lives to him, being baptized in water and being filled in power with the Holy Spirit, just exactly as these Galatian Christians have, Jew and Gentile, male and female, slave and free, then we'll want nothing more than to obey. And actually, we can obey. For all of these things are guides, showing us an outline what it means to love God and to love our neighbor as ourselves. So what I've said is quite true. We don't have to obey the Ten Commandments. But just before you ring the uh, heresy hotline, (laughs) allow me to make some important qualifications. Firstly, sin is still sin. The Word of God shows us that. But we have graduated, we have come into our inheritance, we have been set free. Secondly, the Word of God is still the Word of God, revealing the mind of Christ. But we no longer live under the administration of the law, but rather as Christians we live under the administration of the Spirit. To quote Professor Bruce Waltke, the Spirit is our pedagogue. Third caveat, what I am saying is perfectly true. As long as my audience are baptized Christians, it was to baptized Christians that this letter was sent. I I do not want to sound like I'm loading up baptism with a whole bunch of mystical and magical qualities, but the basic fact of the matter is that the New Testament does not know or recognize the category of the unbaptized Christian. So if you're Christian and you're not baptized, then your, your first act of obedience is still waiting. With respect to others... With respect to, to all who, who, who cannot claim to be baptized Christians, yes, God expects you to obey the Ten Commandments flawlessly your entire life long. Not one slip. Zero tolerance. The holy and the profane cannot mix. And with all due respect, if you're listening to me and, you, and you're not claiming to be a baptized Christian, uh, with all due respect, I, I would really, really not want to be in your shoes come Judgment Day. I would, it's, un, it's unimaginable to, to, to stand in the presence of a holy God now that we know his expectations without the covering protection of the blood of Christ washing us through the waters of baptism, appropriated by faith in Jesus Christ's work on our behalf on the cross. I cannot imagine anything worse. So if you're not a baptized Christian, I I pray you attend to that urgently. So then, if it's not about circumcision, Sabbath-keeping, kosher food laws, and all the rest, then what is it about? What does authentic Christian spirituality look like in practical terms? Love your neighbor as yourself. Walk in the Spirit. What does that mean? Well, that's what we're going to look at next week. By the grace of God. Now, to the glory of God our Father and Jesus Christ his Son and the Holy Spirit, one God, world without end, be glory now and forever and ever. Amen.